Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah talk in Dutchess County, New York. I am your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Schuster School of Long Island. And with me in the studio today is Rabbi Rob Scheinberg of the United Synagogue of Hoboken. That would be Hoboken, New Jersey. And Hope Lavov, a fourth grade teacher at Beit Rabban School in Manhattan. Both longtime veterans of Camp Ramah, both in the Berkshires and elsewhere as well as veterans on Parsha Talk itself. So, welcome to the studio. We begin with one of the longest Parshiot of the year, Matot Masei, combined this year. And it begins with a verse by Daber Moshe, Orashe Matot, Livnei Yisrael, Lemor, Zehadavar, Asher Siva Adonai. That God, that Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes, to the children of Israel, saying, this is the word that the Lord commanded us. Rashi notes that the Nisim, or the heads of the tribes here, receive a special honor in that Moshe communicates with them first the revelation, and then only to B'nai Yisrael. So what are we to make today of this idea of a hierarchical divine transmission? That God speaks to the man on top, as it were, Moshe, and then the word, we might say, trickles down to the next level of leaders, and then finally to the masses. Rob? Uh, it's I, I I understand it certainly in the context of Torah, uh, but it's not the only model that we see. And I think about how in the prophets, when God uh, communicates to the prophets, there are some of them who are in the upper echelons of society. There are some of them like like Amos, for example, who are described as being uh, uh, in the the uh, you could say working class, and and that um, I'm not convinced that God, at any point, made it a priority to speak primarily through leadership. I would think that uh, when God speaks, people at whatever level of society may have that opportunity for, for access. So do you think that's still true today? Do we think that God communicates to us verbally as we read about it in the Torah? Uh, if you ask me directly, that's not? not how I that's not how I understand God communicating. I do feel that God communicates, but I would not be certain that God communicates in uh, uh, verbally, or at least that has not happened uh, to me directly. <laughs> Hope. Uh, yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Um, that it's uh, it's hard to point to uh, specific communications of that kind. Um, but maybe we could think creatively about the, the, all the different ways that we communicate um, today that are extremely different from those times. Um, and uh, it, I, I think that would suggest that um, there's maybe a more personal or more direct or more intimate way of communicating with God. So this is an interesting issue, I think, in this part particular Parsha because there's a lot in this Torah reading that is disturbing, I think, to the modern the modern mind. We have the depiction of women, which is mixed to say the very mm-hmm. best. 
we have a holy war in which the people are commanded to obliterate another people. And when the women are left alive to make sure that the women who have had sexual relations with men are destroyed or killed. Um, so maybe we could turn first to the beginning of the Parsha, which is the chapter dealing with oaths and vows that a woman might make. When she makes them, if she is in her father's house or when she's married, the male has the right of first refusal, as it were. What do we make of that today? Well, as I had uh, noted when we, when we spoke earlier on this, there are certain sections of the Torah for which my response really is, respectfully, the Torah was written a long time ago, and sometimes you can tell. And that the way that I, what I want to do with this chapter is to say it reflects gender relations that are so different from what we have today. It gives an understanding of women not really as autonomous beings, but rather controlled by the important men in their lives, whether they're fathers or their husbands. So I just want to find what is there that I do like about this passage and what I do like about it is that it serves as the foundation of the, the principle in the, in the Talmud of that uh, silence is equivalent to assent because there's a, a specification in this passage that, yes, the male uh, father or husband can nullify a vow of his daughter or wife if he speaks up against it immediately. But if he doesn't speak up against it, it's like, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. He's lost his window of opportunity if he doesn't speak up right away. So then you would suggest that perhaps this is a limitation. That rather than the man being allowed to always cancel the vow, he has, as you described it, a narrow window. Well, I'm actually just more interested in the principle uh, that uh, there are times that we just actually need to speak up immediately. And if we don't speak up immediately, then we lose our, our impact. And I certainly see that when, for example, hearing somebody else say something objectionable. I know that that's not really what this passage is about, but it's a way that I can extrapolate from this passage. That if I, for example, hear somebody say something that is, that is, is offensive, let's say uh, someone is, is saying something offensive to, to, some, uh, to, to a, a group or a classification of people, I have a responsibility to speak up immediately. And if I don't speak up immediately, it is appropriate for people to assume that, in fact, I agreed with that statement. It gives me a lot of responsibility to, to, to speak up. So, okay. Hope, would you share a comment? Um, sure. I think that uh, Rob's way of looking at it and uh, gleaning something positive from it um, has got me thinking. Uh, because... Um, when I came upon this, uh, especially the, the very beginning of this Parsha, uh, it was actually last Shabbat when my son, Aaron, who is in Machon here, came to my bunk and said, I am reading uh, Torah on Monday. I have the first Aliyah. Uh, I mean, I'm reading all the, the Aliyot. I'm reading the first Aliyah next Shabbat. And it was this particular topic um, and so we actually had a chance to sit and talk about it a little bit because the language is a bit difficult in terms of uh, Torah reading. Um, and it was interesting to even just see the look on his face of what is that about? 
Um, so I think in answer to your original question, um, it, it, this doesn't sit well at all. It's very, it's very hard to um, kind of wrap your head around it in, in our, with our modern sensibilities. Okay, so here we have a chapter in the Torah that we find difficult. Um, I think we can agree that the Torah certainly in the abstract is a holy text, one that we treasure as Jews. How do we ascribe holiness to a text like this? Well, in general, my strategy with difficult texts, or one of the things that I am likely to do with such difficult texts, and by the way, this is a lot easier than the ones that are coming up, because actually nobody's getting killed yet. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I find I'm often drawn to is wondering, have the sages of our tradition shared the discomfort that I have? And then sometimes I find myself drawn to interpretations throughout the centuries that show actually some of the parts that I have discomfort with, they also have discomfort with. Right. We sometimes do have a tendency to think that we're the first ones to think of things. (laughs) So that's certainly a point very well taken. But I interrupted, I think, so you were about to say further? Uh, I, well, I have not actually investigated whether there are antecedents in, in the, the, the writings of the sages that, that actually point out some of the difficulties that we have with this or the other difficult passages that we're coming up with. But if I, that might be something that I would, uh, that, that I would look for. Okay, so if we could speak a little bit about the modern times. So... Here at Camp Ramah, in at least the upper Eidot, they re- we read the whole Torah reading. So we're going to read this passage, I believe, every year. I think Mato Mase is part of the, the summer calendar for Ramah for the foreseeable future. So unlike synagogues that are on the triennial reading, perhaps, where they might only read it once every three years, we have to confront it year in and year out. Is there a value in wrestling with a difficult text like this? Or do we say that maybe this year we should try the triennial cycle so we can leave this out for another time to consider? Do we want to wrestle with texts like this every year? Uh, Just one other comment about this. Something I really like about Jewish tradition and our insistence on reading the entire uh, Torah is... Every year, I mean. Well, every, every year and going through truly the entire thing rather than skipping around uh, and not shying away from difficult passages is that there is no text that is thousands of years old that is not going to have some parts that are jarring to today. And if we want to, I think it's a good idea for us to get used to the idea that a process of reading almost any text is going to be a, 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 a sifting kind of process and that we always can find something of value. And I noted that when I read this passage, what strikes me of, as being of value is just this, this, uh, this idea that if you hear somebody saying something offensive, you have a very short window of opportunity to speak up. So it turns out that what the circumstances of that in this chapter are more difficult for me, but there's an essential message that is very important to me. And I'm very grateful that we can treasure the Torah that teaches me that value. I would add that the the English teacher in me would answer resoundingly, we should always approach difficult texts. We should always, we should not shy away from um, 
from the difficult text. I think that um, it, it, it puts everything into a, into a greater context. And it's hard to know, actually, what piece of text is going to um, spark an idea, spark a connection um, for a student or for ourselves. Um, I think what's interesting about these two partiot together this Shabbat is that we start with the women and the vows of women and we end with a revisiting of the daughters of Tzolchad. And we'll, I know we're going to get to that a little bit later, um, but, and, and that's not a, a perfectly resolved story either, but in contrast with this start, it's a much better um, uh, view of women, or a much, I think, a much better end for the for the women involved in terms of what they wanted. Okay, so perhaps we could say that today we don't have all the answers, and it's good to remember that our ancestors did not have all the answers either. <laughs> so moving along to the next chapter, which is a chapter devoted <coughs> to holy war. Um, which is obviously not a pleasant subject on a lot of different levels. One of the verses, not the verse itself that I like, but the comment that goes with it is worth <coughs> discussing. The verse reads, Nekom nekmat Yisrael el amecha. That God is speaking to Moses and saying, avenge with B'nai Yisrael against the, take vengeance against the Midianites, and afterwards you, Moshe, are going to die. And Rashi has a comment that has always resonated with me. That even though Moses knew that this next act he was going to take would precede his death, he did not delay, and but rather did it with simcha, with joy. Now, obviously, we can't read too much into it because what's going to follow is a graphic destruction of a people, and we hope that Moshe did not take Simcha in that, even though it was commanded by God. But this idea that Moses has within him that life, that one is obligated to live life to the fullest up until the very end. And no matter what will come, we have an obligation while we're alive to do as much as we can as long as we are able. So perhaps you could add something, Rob. Well, I know that uh, uh, doing creative misreadings of uh, biblical verses is not really something we're, that, that we're supposed to do. It's something that the rabbis in the, in the rabbinic era did all the time. Uh, but uh, my inclination would be to do one, which is to say, noting that there is no vav before the word achar. It doesn't say, like, God is not saying, I'm giving you two instructions. And then the second instruction is like the achar, and then afterwards tesef elamacha. So I'd like to just read them all together and say God is actually saying, uh, "You want to take vengeance against the Midianites? You shall surely take vengeance against the Midianites." Basically, it's like over your dead body. Um, you so so that in fact this is uh, uh, this is something that is is. Uh, uh, is is not God approving of vengeance, and that is absolutely counter pshat, counter the plain meaning of the text. 
but that um, my, my sense is that if people felt that engaging in the kind of, of uh, uh, creative midrash, which sometimes involved misreadings of biblical verses to bring them in line with ideology, uh, we're done today. That's something that somebody might do. It's interesting when I was when I got to this part, um, it reminded me of a a, a conversation uh, that I had a, a few weeks ago in one of my classes here, um, and I don't remember exactly what the class was, but it it came up the idea, um, the Talmudic idea of repent one day before your death, and I asked the, the Hanifim, they were a size younger. Uh, campers here, um, what they thought that meant, and they really got it, and this idea that you don't know when you're going to die, so you can't possibly know the day before you die, so it's something that you always have to be in the process of doing, and I was thinking about that, that M M Moshe's position here is, is unique in the sense that he does know the day of his death. He does have this um, uh, this opportunity that most people uh, don't have to sort things out, to finish things up, to, to, to close loose ends and things. Um, and maybe that's part of what Rashi was talking about in terms of he, he knows the end is coming and like you said, it's um, you know, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to be the best Moshe that I can be um, in these last days. So I want to continue with a, a subsequent verse in this chapter. And it continues. So Moses sends them a thousand per tribe as an army. And with them, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the priest. And Rashi's comment is, that on one hand we have 12,000 soldiers, and on the other hand we have Pinchas, and Pinchas is equal to them all. And why does God send Pinchas instead of Elazar? God says, because he began the mitzvah by killing Kozbi and the Parsha two weeks ago that we read part of last week as well. And God wants to give him the opportunity to finish the job. So the question that's raised, so you spoke eloquently, Rob, about wanting to read vengeance out of the verse. But does vengeance have a place in our world today? So we live in a world where there are people who practice or want to practice holy war. Is there any response that would, today, we think might be equivalent to the response of the Israelites in the Torah reading this week? No. And I realize that my saying no means that I have, I, I have some dissonance with what's in the Torah. Even more so when later on in Pasuk uh, Tedvav, uh, Moses said, you know, you all, you didn't do this the right way because actually you've left alive all of the women. So you need to go back and actually engage in even more, uh, even more killing. And this is, of course, killing of people who, as far as we know, are 
you know, they're not, a, they're not, let's say, and, and, uh, they're not an, an active threat. Uh, several years ago, I spent some time on a, a, a legislative committee in New Jersey that was exploring the death penalty in New Jersey. They ended up making a recommendation for the abolition of the death penalty in New Jersey. So we spent a lot of time talking about penological intents. Under what circumstances is it, it how, how do you design a system for punishment and what really is your goal? And there are some people who say an appropriate goal is vengeance, is just taking, uh, taking revenge over someone. Uh, and uh, I would say that, uh, that uh, deterrence is a very appropriate goal, okay? And neutralizing an ongoing threat is a very appropriate goal, but I am not convinced from anything that I have read that vengeance is actually an appropriate goal for for for, just for any aspect of society. That's right. Yeah. Hope. What about you? Well, as you were talking, Rob, I was thinking also what we have um, coming up on Shabbat: the description of the Irmiklat, the the cities of ref of refuge. Um, and I think that fits perfectly with what Rob was saying in terms of vengeance not being the answer, but um, and and not just not being the answer, but also active protection of people who might um, be the victims of that kind of vengeance. So just to clarify for our listeners, in ancient Israel, if a man kills someone unintentionally, he would have the opportunity to flee to one of six cities located in the land of Israel where he would be able to seek refuge from a relative of the deceased who had the right to come and kill him before a trial. And so what you're suggesting, Cope, is that this provides a, a medium position between taking vengeance for death because of the recognition that the person who committed the the homicide was not completely responsible. But are there cases where a person is completely responsible where we do want to exact more of a punishment? Or do we say that what makes us human is our ability to restrain ourselves and to look for as nonviolent a punishment as we can for even the most violent of crimes? It's hard to see what the what the what uh, how it would be a positive outcome to to extract uh, to say that um, there's a there's a crime and it's bad and then to say oh to correct that we're going to do something to you that is also Bad. So a life was taken, so we're going to then uh, permit the taking of a life. Um, one thing that I've heard um, said uh, more than once is, uh, you know, these kinds of punishments maybe would, should be in the hand of God. And that, uh, and that humans um, maybe don't have the capacity really to, to understand um, uh, all of this. And uh, 
that that to me feels like um, an interesting out uh, for us in in this modern world to say, you know what, we're not we're not going to play God and uh, and and do this because we can't be sure that that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So. I, I agree. And some of the angriest passages in Jewish liturgy actually are about vengeance, but they're about God exercising vengeance. Like, El Nekamot Adonai, El Nekamot God of vengeance, appear and do what we want you to do. Well, that was the psalm for today. today. Or at the Pesach Seder, Pour out your wrath upon the nations who do not know you. That's also people asking God to do it, not people planning to do it themselves. And... Uh, just in thinking about my effort to find people in the Jewish tradition who share my discomfort with the idea of of vengeance and killing, even killing murderers, I feel like I've got a lot of people in the Talmud who sought to limit the applicability of capital punishment. And uh, even saying that a, a court that kills one person every seven years is considered to be a murderous court. And another rabbi saying, actually, once every 70 years would be still a murderous court. And still others, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon, saying, if we were, if we were in charge, nobody ever would get, would get executed. And that I think these are people who saw sensibly that the positive that comes from killing, even, let's say, state-sponsored killing, is actually outweighed by lots of other negatives. There should be other ways to make for a safer society without killing. So I'm struck by this idea that we would allow God to seek vengeance in these cases. And then we need to be very clear that when we say that we're created in the image of God, that that vengeful God is not the image that we wish to emulate, that we have another image of God that we think is far more worthy of emulation than this violent and vengeful God. That's interesting. It means the doctrine of imitatio Dei, that we were supposed to imitate God. We're not always supposed to imitate Well, God. it's we're limited. Imitate certain things about God. So I just want to point out one other thing for our listeners, that the person who goes to the city of refuge has to stay there until the death of the high priest. And, of course, the death of the high priest was not on the schedule. It could happen the next day. It could happen after the person reach the end of his own natural death. But the important point is that the Bible does not believe in accidents, that every death needs to be avenged in some way. And even if it didn't require the taking of a life, it did require a life. And that would be the Kohen Gadol's life, who would atone for all the sins that had polluted the land. we have a, a little bit of time left for the Torah reading, so mm-hmm. if we could turn to the last chapter, which is the conclusion of the daughters of Slovchad. The daughters of Slovchad were five daughters of Slovchad, as it turned out, <laughs> um, who Slovchad himself died um, because he was part of the wilderness generation. He had not done anything in particular that was wrong, but happenstance led him to die in the wilderness. And his five daughters were perplexed that their father's inheritance would pass out of the family because he only had daughters instead of sons. They go to Moshe, and Moshe discovers that God agrees with the daughters of Slovchad. So what we have at the end of the Parsha is a note that the daughters of Slovchad are free to marry 
members of their own tribe, that they're not free to marry anyone, but they have to marry someone from the tribe of Menashe. So I hope if you would share the point that you made when we were discussing earlier, I think it's a valuable one. Yeah, so when I first read this, I was initially annoyed because it, it seemed like, oh, here you give them, uh, give these daughters, uh, acknowledge them uh, and, and recognize their right to the inheritance just a few parshiot ago. And, and now, uh, because the, the heads of the tribe are worried that they're going to marry outside of the tribe and it will have an impact on uh, the tribe's land, they, um, uh, these, these daughters are being told who they have to marry. Um, but then I thought about it and it occurred to me that actually the, this uh, decree um, is very much in the spirit of what they were originally asking for in terms of honoring their father's memory, honoring their father's name, keeping things in, um, in the family, in the tribe. So uh, it, it, it seems to, uh, to make sense. Something that I like about this end passage is that in a parallel to the to the the introduction of the Benot Slovchad in Parashat Pinchas uh, from from last week in uh, Pasuk Hey, it says can that Moshe says can Mate Bene Yosef Dovrim, which basically means the tribe of Joseph, who's, uh, the the children of Joseph who raised this complaint, they have a good point, which is an exact parallel to what. God says, which means the daughters of Tzlovchad who came forward, they also have a good point. I like that the Torah demonstrates that even at that time, uh, there was a, the, that the Torah was responsive to ethical critique. That there were segments of the society that said, this is actually not fair to us. They brought their complaint to Moses, who then brought, brings the complaint to God. And that sometimes God then says... I see what you're. I see what you're saying. You have a. You have a good point. So sometimes I think it's fair to say that we're too quick to complain. Whether in the situation of the daughters of Slochad, not that they were complaining per se, but that they were raising a legitimate point, which it could have been easy to dismiss by saying, "You're. This doesn't make sense to us." But Moshe does listen and he does find the answer. And for us, living thousands of years later. We keep reading, and sometimes our own answers change as a result of further reading. And we also have to remind ourselves that we don't always get the last word ourselves when we read the Torah. Sometimes a later iteration of ourselves gets the last word. We're, this has been a very quick half hour, as it turns out. Um, I'd like to just take a word to talk about the season that we're in. This Haftarah this week is from the second chapter of the book of Jeremiah. It's the second of the three weeks of punishment which precede Tisha B'Av, which actually on the calendar will be next Shabbat, although the fast will be pushed off until Sunday because we don't commemorate Tisha B'Av on Shabbat itself. If you have a word either about the season or about the particular Haftarah that we can conclude our Parsha talk with. This is not about the Haftarah, but it is about the season. There are many of the campers here who, over the course of this week, are going to be preparing to read 
Echa, to read a section from the book of, of uh, Lamentations that we're going to be gathering a week from Saturday night to read here at camp. And uh, Hebrew, of course, is written without vowels, and uh, it's been noted in the Midrash that the word Echa, which is the title of the saddest book of the Bible, has actually the same letters as the word Ayeka, where are you, which is the word that's used when God is, is uh, calling out to uh, to the first uh, first human being who's who's hiding, so that basically the flip side of echad of the question, how could something so terrible have happened, is ayeka, where are you? Because we may be receiving that call from God to try to to uh, prevent tragedy in in our world, and I think that that's one of the the lessons that I try to draw from uh, the from the book of Lamentations. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I think that that really hits it, um, and uh, and something that uh, Mahon campers uh, that I've been meeting with this week um, have those questions, those where are you questions on their mind in terms of how they are trying to make sense of current events here at home and around the world. Um, and I think that, that this season gives us a tremendous opportunity to, to really to tie back to your um, question from earlier about uh, difficult topics. I think it gives us a, a perfect opportunity to, uh, to engage thoughtfully with topics that might, might be difficult, but in a, in a way that is meaningful um, and really helps. helps Oh, bro. Uh, thank you very much. Rob, since you opened the door for a creative misreading, I can't resist that the answer to the question Ayaka is to be on Colorama Radio, 102.3 FM in the vicinity of Camp Ramah in the Berkshires. There's a podcast on www.colorama.us for Hope Lebov and Rob, Rabbi Rob Scheinberg. I am Rabbi Gary Chesler. Wishing everyone Shabbat Shalom.